So welcome back to the Converge for Change, the Business of Social Justice podcast. We hope you enjoyed our last series on the future of Black business with guests Jessica Norwood of The Runway Project and Aaron Walker, who I sat down with last week of Camelback Ventures. So I want to share a few highlights from the show um, that really have me thinking. So first of all, Aaron talked about the book that he is reading called My Grandmother's Hands by Reshma um, Menachem. And he talked a little bit about how we are going to deal with the pain, what I call the reckoning of America. But are we going to deal with this pain in a clean or dirty way? And I think as many of you can see, right, like it's a personal choice. Um, There are some folks who are really set on wrestling with this idea of privilege um, and are committed to taking that all the way to the end. And that may mean um, a certain level of violence. I think we're seeing that all over our country. And I think we're also seeing folks who are really coming into the space of atonement and the space of healing. Um, And we see that all throughout our country. So I think it's going to be interesting to continue to see how this plays out um, nationally and also how it plays out locally and also individually. Um, I know there are days when my My rage um, is such that it is hard to contain. I mean, it is hard to watch some of the recordings of people being killed by police um, without experiencing rage? Um, And then how do we move forward and process that, right? Do we process that in a clean way or a dirty way? So I think the other thing that came up in my conversation with Aaron is this idea of access to capital. Is access to capital, um, has that really been our problem or has it been about proximity to whiteness? And I think both Jessica and Aaron really spoke to this, that many ways these ideas ideas of risk um, and our ability to access capital and whether or not folks will loan us money to be able to propel our businesses forward are really conversations about proximity to whiteness. We know that in many case, cases when um, Black people and white people um, go to approach financial institutions to get capitalized, that often it is whiteness that allows folks to be able to access those resources. We also talk a lot about how Black entrepreneurs and um, people of color at this point need to really be asking for all that we need, right? That we need to not just ask for what we think we can have, but we need to ask for all that we deserve. And this is really where the conversation of equity um, is, you know, kind of the rubber meeting the road. So 41% of Black businesses are predicted to close in um, this COVID-19 recession. And so how are we going to keep uh, the cash flow um, going into our communities? How are we going to feed our families? And so it is really ironic that all of these things are happening at one time, the reckoning as well as the recession. And so how do we show up uh, for our businesses, for our communities, in our families in this moment. Lastly, Aaron's open letter in the GRIO, um, which he talked about in our interview and took him two years to finish. He addressed uh, philanthropists, and really talked about the mental and physical stress of having to beg for resources. So Aaron, I really applaud you for being brave and letting the world read this um, and sharing um, that same letter and sentiment with us here on the show. As you all know, today we're going to be starting our conversation on the future of philanthropy with our first guest, Edward Villanueva, a great friend of mine and a fellow social Uh, justice philanthropist. All right. So if you missed last week's episode, I encourage you to check it out at www.convergeforchange.com under the podcast tab. This week, I am so excited to um, bring to you my guest, Edgar Villanueva. He is a globally recognized expert on social justice philanthropy. Edgar currently serves as a chair of the board of directors of Native Americans in Philanthropy and is a board member of the Andrus Family Fund, a national foundation that works to improve outcomes for vulnerable youth. Edgar currently serves as Senior Vice President of Programs and Advocacy at the Schott Foundation for Public Education, where he oversees grant investment and capacity building supports for education justice campaigns across the United States. 
Edgar previously held leadership roles at the Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust in North Carolina and at the Margaret Casey Foundation in Seattle. Edgar is the author of the award-winning book, Decolonizing Wealth, which offers hopeful and compelling alternatives to the dynamics of colonization in the philanthropic and social finance sectors. In addition to working in philanthropy for many years, he has consulted with numerous nonprofit organizations and national and global philanthropies on advancing racial equity inside of their institutions and through their investment strategies. Edgar holds two degrees from the Gillings Global School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Edgar is an enrolled member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina and resides in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Edgar, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I am so excited. So before we jump in, I'd like to start each interview by helping the audience get to know my guest. So will you tell us a little bit about yourself? They heard about you, your extensive bio, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and add in one thing most people wouldn't know. Mm, Okay. So I am Native American. I'm uh, enrolled in the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina. And being Native is a major part of my identity um, and my worldview. I'm Southern from North Carolina. I live in Brooklyn, New York now. Mostly what I'm about and the people that I hang with, my chosen family are people who are fighting for liberation. And a lot of folks who work in the space of philanthropy who are involved in various parts of the work and helping to resource Black, Indigenous, and people of color-led social movement work. I think that what a lot of people may not know about me, if you've met me later in life, is that I grew up really in the church, which that may not be a surprise, but I actually went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and I studied Black gospel music. I sang with a Mississippi Mass Choir And I um, still am a very big fan of Black gospel, and that's kind of my my go-to when I need uh, to to feel peace and joy. And and so there's a lot of uh, things about growing up in a church that also I I carry with me into my adult life. And one of those things uh, is that in church growing up, I learned sign language. And I actually used to work as a sign language interpreter. I was certified and paid my way through college. One of my jobs was being a sign language interpreter. Wow. Okay. So we've known each other for a while. And I didn't, I knew about the Mississippi Mass Choir. I knew about your love for growing up in the Black church and your love for gospel music. I did not know. Uh, I didn't know that. And, you know, I've been very impressed with these sign language interpreters the past couple of months doing their thing, um, yes. you know, with all of these press conferences. So, wow. Okay. That was, that was a smile on my face. I had, I did not know that as many times as we, as we have hung out. All right. So let's get into the interview. I think it's important that we really start, start by acknowledging where we are as a country. And I know, because I know you personally, I know you've been thinking, writing, speaking a lot about this in many ways. For you, for me, none of this is a surprise. We've been seeing, you know, breadcrumbs that this was going to happen. In my opinion, COVID was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back in many ways, as well as, you know, the continued, the continuation of police brutality and, and all the things, racism in our country. So what, where are you, what are you thinking about, you know, what are you meditating on in this moment? You know, it's, oh my God, it's like, um, so I think it's such an amazing time to be alive and as heavy as things have been in the past month and just all the things that the pandemic and the social distancing and just all of, all of the, the heaviness with that, there's a part of me that feels a tinge of excitement and, you know, we're living in a moment of revolution I'm so kind of excited with anticipation around where we're going with with all of this work and the movement. So it's it's been just just crazy, like the triple pandemic of of COVID, uh, then the economic fallout from that, and and now you know what we're seeing. The general public is now beginning to understand what we've known about racial justice and police brutality. It's just it's just crazy. So I'm I'm kind of excited. I'm also outraged. 
Um, a lot of the work that I'm doing is about moving money to communities. Uh, in my work at the Shot Foundation, we've been resourcing police-free schools and funding Black-led movement work forever. Um, in my work uh, through Decolonizing Wealth and Liberating Capital, trying to move funding to communities, I'm still outraged because, you know, with some of the work that we're doing, we're trying to support tribal communities who still have not received a dime of support from the stimulus package. And so it's kind of like excitement, but also more of the same. And, you know, Native communities, for example, who are guaranteed by treaty rights because of the the stolen land and all that Natives have been through are guaranteed health care in this country. Two groups are guaranteed health care, Native Americans and folks who are incarcerated. And to be still fighting through a pandemic and trying to get health care and to get basic support from the federal government to uh, care for our communities and still not have that is just infuriating. And where the pandemic, a lot of the countries moved on, but we are still trying to flatten the curve in Indian country. Um, And at the same time, you know, you'll see in this movement for Black Lives, you'll see the solidarity that we have with that movement because we also have enormous, like enormous rates of um, police brutality in our communities. But, you know, it's the, the COVID thing is especially triggering for me because of our history with disease and genocide and knowing that in some communities like Hopi, which is so small, um, we are at risk of losing the very last of our, our language speakers and our culture bearers. And so What's at risk with COVID is uh, entire tribal nations being wiped out. And so that's why I'm feeling fired up about fighting to um, support Native communities in this moment and fighting for Black liberation. Edgar, you, I'm glad we're talking right now because I, I am struggling. I am be honest with you and everybody else. I am struggling in this moment to both feel hopeful and excited about the momentum that I see and the organizing and the courage I'm seeing folks calling out corporations and calling out the federal government and, you know, effectively organizing all types of things, but then the way in which racism, systemic oppression is so entrenched in our country that even in the moment of a pandemic, we can't show up and do right for folks. And like like you, you know, living in New Orleans, what's at stake is a culture. What's absolutely at stake is a culture. And I, I don't think that that's been talked about enough in the, in the midst of this pandemic when we think about who this is all impacting. So uh, I'd love to have you expand your point a little bit about Native and Black solidarity. You, in many ways, are the convergence of that for me and my, you know, the my go-to person for kind of me strengthening my um, connections in that community, me thinking about ways in which I can show up better as a supporter and an ally. But can you talk about the work to connect communities and what does that look like? What does Black Native solidarity look like in the work that you do or the work that you're seeing in community? Yeah, absolutely. So being from the South, uh, my tribe, the Lumbee tribe, has a long history of fighting for civil rights in solidarity with the Black community. And, you know, we I'm from a part of the country where, one, um, so many people don't think of Native Americans being in that part of the country. Your mind immediately goes to the Southwest. But we have 60,000 members in my tribe, and uh, we're actually the largest tribe east of the Mississippi River. And so there is a long, long history of solidarity, solidarity, and um, you know, uh, even you know, moments that we celebrate where we came together to fight the KKK, and and so that's that's something that definitely runs deep from from my community. And so interesting, I was talking to uh, Pastor Mike McBride, who you probably know a while back, and his ancestors are from the same community that mine are from. And we were able to just share stories of what's been, you know, handed down to us about this, this long struggle for, for, uh, for justice that's in our community, you know, and I think also my tribe is unique in that you have to think about the very first point of contact colonization in the U S happened in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so for 500 years, my community has been exposed to whiteness. 
When the slave trade began, of course, uh, the South and East Coast were the first place that Black folks were brought over. And so we just learned early on how to like fight this stuff together and that we were in together. And that solidarity um, in the struggle was really, really important. Also, because of the early history, there's in the time that has passed, there's been a lot of mixing, right? And so, you know, when you look at my family and who claims uh, Native uh, identity, you will see from very light skinned to very dark skinned people, right? Mm -hmm. There are things I can tell you about my family where you would be like, they're black. They're not. In- <laughs> Everything you described right. to me, that's how I. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and anti-black racism is also something that's really real. And I think it's something that indigenous communities have to come to terms with. And we have um, definitely, you know, I think in the South, we, we see native communities, native individuals who um, are racist and need to deal with that. Um, but we've also, uh, you know, I think been a little bit ahead of that and understanding that so many of us are mixed. We, we just come from a, a mixed identity. And I've seen in my own family how my cousins who are darker skin were treated versus me who is lighter skin. And so it's just been an awareness that I've always had early on being the only native in my school because my, my mom moved to the city when I was five. Um, I you could pass sometimes they hang out with the white kids, but most of the time in the lunchroom, I ended up with the black kids and I was on the bus with all the black kids. So um, I've had to navigate between those worlds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the time. And what I'm, I'm, I'm really um, proud in this moment to see, you know, Native folks sometimes who have um, not been on the right side of justice. There's a there's a there's a fear and a distrust, and we've had so little. Um, and at times, I think Native folks have not done all we 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 can do to stand with our Black relatives because of you know the mindset of we got our own struggle over here, mm-hmm. trying to hold on a little bit that we got, and you know. But I'm so happy to see that changing, and in this this new. Um, attention that we're seeing um, on on Black Lives and this this new unrest that's happening. I turn on my TV and I see on the front lines, you know, in, in Minnesota, folks and wearing their um, traditional clothing and dancing and and just really being in solidarity. The American Indian movement in the United States started in Minneapolis, so that's our our movement for for justice. It started in Minneapolis, and to see. You know, many years later, with the um, lynching of, of George Floyd happening there and what what transpired after, to see folks from the American Indian Movement be right there. And I've heard stories of um, Native organizations opening up their, um, their doors in Minneapolis to do organizing training and to provide food and drinks for Black you know, black organizers. It's just beautiful. And it's, it's just the understanding that our liberation is so mutually like interdependent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course it's important for us to remind ourselves about the history of African-Americans and native Americans, um, particularly maroon societies, you know, again, living in new Orleans, I'm currently in Jamaica. There's a huge maroon society that continues to exist here. And outside of New Orleans, the Homa Indians were a source of refuge. And of course, New Orleanians pay homage to them through the Mardi Gras Indian traditions. So there is a long sort of complicated family history between, you know, Black folks and Native folks. And it is beautiful to see that that we are remembering that and, and pulling on that in, this, in these times. Uh, so... Again, I love to continue the the thread of your origin story and want to talk a little bit about your mom as, you know, uh, I know you share a story of that in, in your work, but you want to talk a little bit about the first philanthropist you knew? I am always happy to talk about Miss Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, my mom, I talk about her a lot. I'm a mama's boy, but she was the first philanthropist that I knew. You know, we were poor. My mom was a single parent. She had me when she was 15 years old and was a, and still is actually a domestic worker. She cleaned houses. She took care of rich folks, nursing care, all of that. And so at, at a young age, I 
it's it's interesting. We as poor as we were, I had this like temporary proximity to wealth because I would go to work with my mom sometimes and mm-hmm. uh, meet the people that she took care of and those kinds of things. And you know, she it, it was just different. I, I didn't demonize people with wealth in the way that some might who come from my background because I just saw them as regular people and they were really nice to us and made sure I had you know shoes for school and. And that type of thing. So I think that's later played out in life for me with the organizing I do with with rich folks now because I can see past the money and just get to their humanity and and, and I'm able to kind of um, connect with them around that. But uh, my mom was uh, very involved in the church and I used to say that I was a drug addict because I was drugged to church every Sunday morning. <laughs> Saturday night, Bible study on Wednesday night. Um, and as a part of that, uh, you know, belief system that my mom held, we were just super involved in the community. I shared with you that I learned sign language because there were people who came to our church who needed an interpreter. And so right. any way that we could be a part of helping others, that's pretty much how we spent our lives. Um, I share a story about my mom in the book about her starting this bus ministry. And that's literally how I spent my adolescent years was on Saturday doing what we call visitation in the neighborhoods, going around, just hanging out and building community and giving candy to kids and like checking up on Miss So-and-so and and what we did and just reminded them that that there was a place for them in the community and that we had a bus that would pick them up and bring them to church. And so, uh, you know, I, I saw my mom, in spite of having three jobs uh, at times and not having a lot of money, she poured herself into community and she taught me to do the same. And so that's what real philanthropy is, right? Like my mom will never be a millionaire or be able to write those kinds of checks, but the legacy of um, love and giving and support and um, this showing up and being a good person is, is really what philanthropy to me is about. And so that's, that's the shoulders I'm standing on today. Well, Edgar, I, I so appreciate that because we're going to get into a conversation about institutional philanthropy, but I, I really wanted to start there because, you know, it's important that we reframe this idea of who is a philanthropist. We know, you know, definitely people of color, Uh, by far share more of their income than other groups. We have that data. But I don't think we capture all the ways in which sharing and giving and loving other people happen. So I think that's really important for us to start there and start naming, you know, and reframing and, and, and naming philanthropists in a different type of way. So let's, I guess, now shift the conversation to institutional philanthropy, something both you and I have been involved in for a while. Why don't you talk a little bit about your work at the Schott Foundation, just to kind of frame that for our guests, talk a little bit about the history of that work that you support in that space. And then I want to dig into a little bit about your opinions around where philanthropy has been and kind of where it's going. Yeah, absolutely. Um I'm glad to talk about shot. It's so funny. A lot of people think I don't have a daytime job anymore since I wrote a book. <laughs> I, I still work. I still work at a foundation. Um, I just have five jobs like a lot of folks. Um, but shot is a, um, an amazing foundation. It is, um, it's a public foundation that started from f- a family foundation and evolved to be, one that is much more democratic and we don't have family on the board anymore. We don't have an endowment and we raise all the money that we, we give out and we do our work very much in solidarity um, with the movement. We have participatory grant making um, and we are funding uh, racial justice, right? At the right at the nexus of where racial justice impacts education. And so right now, as you might imagine, a lot of our work is focused on police-free schools. That's where our partners are um, are focused, and there's a lot of energy around that. We're seeing um, victories all over the place, Minneapolis, Oakland, Portland, Denver. And it's really great for me because I've worked in the field for a long time at larger institutional foundations, and SHOT is small. And it's sort of a, a quasi-foundation where we have a foot in the, the field of philanthropy, but we're also very deeply connected to our, our partners and community. 
Awesome. All right. So that so that's the day job. Um, so let's get into the book, because I know that has set you on this new course, um, Decolonizing Wealth. So if folks don't have it, please get it. It is on it is on the must read list for the past year and a half, whether or not you are in the field of philanthropy, whether you're on the giving side or the asking side. I think this is a critical piece that um, we need to unpack and in, in, as we have an opportunity to rethink philanthropy. So what drove you to, to write the bit, book? What was your vision for the book? So let's start there. You know, what really drove me is that I had experienced a lot of pain, honestly, being who I am in this sector that is a the widest, most privileged space you can imagine. And being who I am with all the identities that I carry, it, it's not been easy. And I think I often found myself saying things to myself like, you know, people wouldn't believe what we're really talking about in here. Like people think we're having philosophical conversations about poverty or whatever, you know, just all the, there were a lot of things I just thought were ridiculous that I wanted to, <laughs> to expose. Probably. Um, I think I also initially was when, when I learned that my experience was so shared with other people of color, with women, with queer folk, that it wasn't just, you know, I was singled out and targeted for whatever. But my my pain and suffering of working in this field was something that um, was really shared. And I saw through the years after 15 years, so many people I love. Uh, sort of suffer abuse and oppression and to leave philanthropy. We, we can't keep good people of color. I just started getting angry about it. And I wanted to push beyond these superficial conversations that we have started having around diversity, equity, inclusion to really talk about real stuff. And like the conversations that I was having in the corner or around the water cooler or whatever, um, but folks were not having on a main stage in philanthropy. If we are really serious about that life of equity, then let's have a real conversation about it. And so I wanted to just like rip a bandaid off and um, bring to light like a lot of the underlying issues that I feel like are the real challenges and barriers to advancing equity through philanthropy. Definitely. And again, you know, because you and I've been connected for a while, I remember when, you know, you were in the process of writing it and it's been amazing to see its reception and I can't imagine better timing. <laughs> like, um, I mean, the the book hit the ground, people have been percolating and now we're in this moment. Um, what does that feel like? Like, I mean, you did it. I mean, I know you are a person of faith, right? So what does that feel like? Ooh, won't he do it? <laughs> you know, I, it's crazy. It's nothing. It's, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, one, to write the book was such a gift because, as I said, I was kind of writing from a place of pain, but writing the book was a healing process for me. And where it ended up was a place that not only was a gift for me, I'm just so honored that so many other people found in it a framework for healing for themselves and for, for others. But I, I could have never imagined, you know, um, the impact that it would have. I um, had so many doubts about even releasing the book and like, you know, I, in fear, anxiety, wondering if I would ever work in philanthropy again. Mm -hmm. Honestly, some of the my my approaches or things that I, I was calling out in the book were sort of taboo to discuss publicly in this sector. Right. And so I uh, took a major step out to release the book and kind of held my breath and waited for impact. You know, <laughs> I was like mm -hmm. waiting for it. And the response has been um, super, super positive where um, you know, and you're right, the timing I could not have planned for, um, thanks to Black, Black Panther for coming out right before the book and making colonizer a, a household word. Um, but, you know, I, there is something about the flow and, and just really releasing what's inside when you feel called to, when you feel called to do something or called to respond and there are times where something may be uncomfortable, but you know there's a there there is a higher calling or purpose for you to respond or to act or to make a decision. And you kind of lean into that. I just think that, you know, the world is just gonna catch you. Absolutely. 
So yeah, it's been amazing. No, I mean, so anyway, I've been, I've been wondering like, how does that feel, you know, as, you know, as this thing takes off on its own for such a time as this? So I wanted to, to, to talk a little bit about those pain points. Of course, you know, I've spent a significant amount of my career in philanthropy. I, you know, have experienced much of that pain myself. But I think it's really hard for folks, particularly who are on the grantee side, to appreciate what happens behind the scenes, right? Your average program officer of color trying to move resources and make the case to a board that is not uh, reflective of that community, to a CEO or a CFO, even worse sometimes. So can you just talk a little bit about those pain points? I really want to make sure the audience appreciates the dynamics behind the scenes of what folks in the roles that you and I have occupied inside of the field experience and, and how that's part of the part of the issue. It's it's not just about deploying the resources. It's also what's going on behind the scenes um, and some of what you share in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I think regardless of what sec- whatever sector, you know, listeners may be involved in, you can identify with the pain points because ultimately the pain is white supremacy. <laughs> and the way that it shows up in different systems and sectors and that's another surprise for me, I think, with the book. I knew people in philanthropy might read it, but it's been really interesting at how it translates across sectors. Mm-hmm. I've been really involved in uh, the corporate sector and a lot of conversations. I work there with the entertainment industry because ultimately what what happens in organizations, um, if you haven't read just the amazing work that's been done around white dominant culture, white supremacy culture, mm-hmm. you know, in philanthropy, it just seems a little bit more like pervasive and multiplied because we are at its core and a, a sector that was built off of exploiting, exploiting people of color. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, wealth that was built from off of the slave trade, off of genocide, off of stolen land, that legacy wealth that now sits in the coffers of foundations. And to be a person of color working inside of that is traumatizing in one level, but to also be in the position to have to pander and kiss the of people to try to get a crumb of resources back to communities of color is just really, really painful. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I talk about the position that a lot of us played as being the house slaves, because in the first part of the book, I give a plan. It's a plantation analogy. And, you know, it's it's sort of like being understanding that you are still from uh, a community with no power. But yet you do have some assumed privilege by being on the inside of this this very privileged space. But you are still reminded on a regular basis where you came from, who you are and that you have no power. But trying to exercise a little bit of privilege that has been. Um, awarded to you to get money for your people. And so I think the pain points that I outlined in the first part of the book are just actually about the origin of wealth in the first place and how philanthropy came to be. My personal experience as an Indigenous person who faced like forced assimilation to a culture that was uh, not there for the liberation of my people. (laughs) Um, And even down to how I dressed and what kind of car I drove. Um, to understanding and learning this, these crazy power dynamics that exist between funders and the nonprofit sector and the dance that, that, that nonprofits have to do to, to get money and what it feels like to be on the side, that side of the table, like asking for money and begging for money to do your work. Um, and then I talk about the internalized oppression that that this is probably a chapter that resonated with so many people of color across sectors, because as we as people of color come into power and come into resources, the way that we can either a be on the right side of helping our communities and of liberation and to bring in other people of color along with us, our option B is to um, subscribe to a scarcity mindset that. You know, someone's going to take my power and then I take on the behavior of the oppressor. And that's probably been a space in a conversation that no one's been willing to have in philanthropy because 
we, we don't want to diminish diversity efforts or to stifle those efforts out. We need more people of color, but we have got to find ways to hold each other accountable and how we use our power. So those are a couple of the pain points that I share um, about my journey in philanthropy. So Edgar, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, this, um, where we are right now, where we started our conversation about what's happening in the world, and we know that's translating uh, inside of every sector, right? And how folks are being called out or called in. Um, and there is so much in what you just said about internalized um, oppression uh, and how those of us who have had access and privilege to sit in the space of philanthropy, you know, have to make a choice about how uh, we're going to show up for our communities and at what cost to ourselves, because these are environments where if you decide that that's who you're going to be, your authentic self, you know, you may face, you know, retribution. And, you know, I think it it has me thinking a lot about, um, you know, various organizations within philanthropy, what we what we call within the sector philanthropic support organizations and their ability to to one be supported themselves and then to support other folks inside the sector. I know you're on the board of Native Americans and philanthropy. And historically those spaces, Native Americans, Association for Black Foundation Executives, HIP, et cetera, were created to create some safe spaces, but then also to organize people within the sector to be able to have a little bit of cover and political cover to be able to to move some of those things. So very interesting. And I think we're also in an interesting moment where those organizations are kind of having to revisit their, their, their mission and their work. And, you know, to, to be a little bit controversial, I I think it, I think that's, I think that's critical. I think it's critical because yeah, that internalized oppression and that choice that we get to make is, is real. And I think this, hopefully this time is, is holding up a mirror to, to many of us who sit inside the field. So I want to take a, um, a little bit of a turn and talk a little bit about the healing process. So in the book, you talk about seven steps for healing. So we've talked about the pain. So let's talk a little bit about the healing. Um, in this process, you kind of came up with some steps, a formula for helping us find our way forward. You want to talk a little bit about, you know, what things you think we can be doing as a sector, but as a community to decolonize wealth. Yeah, absolutely. So this, the seven steps of healing that I lay out in the book are in many ways not new ideas uh, in Native communities. Are If you're familiar with restorative justice practices, it's really um, those are ideas and practices that have come, come from Native communities. And so for me, the way I came up with these steps was one out of my own personal experience, as I shared When I started writing the book, I was holding a lot of pain and stress from working in this field, and I needed to find a way to be liberated from that. And I spent a lot of time talking to elders in my community around, um, you know, what what is philanthropy? What what does it mean to 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 be a good relative? What does it mean to be a good person in community? How do we use to take care of each other? And through all those conversations kind of combined with the process I was actually living out in the moment kind of led me to these seven steps. And then I brought in the money aspect as we get through um, toward the end of the steps, um, how we actually uh, can use money as a proxy for how we are responding um, to to the process. Uh, The first step is about grieving. And grieving is is just means to, to stop and to actually feel the hurts that we've endured. Mm-hmm. And this is very personal, um, although it can be institutional. For people of color, it might be actually to stop and acknowledging what we've lost. And if anyone's like me, then this is not something that is natural in my family and the way that I was raised. It's all about like moving forward and are you on, you're you're still here, right? Then you just need to like move forward and keep it moving. But actually, to get to a place of healing, we have to unpack what we've been through and come to terms with that and grapple with it. For white folks, it might be coming to terms with your family history and understanding the the harm that's been inflicted on others. For institutions, it might be a foundation that comes to terms with. Um, and acknowledges the harm that uh, the accumulation of wealth for your institution 
might have uh, generated? Like, did you get your money from student loans that exploited youth of color? Did you get your money through some, you know, some industry that uh, like where I used to work at the Reynolds Foundation through uh, slave trade and tobacco farming? Tobacco. Right? Mm-hmm. It's really about naming things as they are. And for many of us, what happened in the past is not something that we have direct responsibility for necessarily, but we have to acknowledge it and share ownership of it and grieve it before we can move to action. White dominant culture wants to quickly fix everything. And uh, we're not going to be able to fix it if we don't actually uncover the past and like sit in that for a minute. Uh, The second step is about apologizing for the hurts that we've caused. And this is where we, uh, this is still a very personal uh, internal kind of exercise because just because you apologize, no one has to be there to receive your apology, but actually apologizing for the hurts that you've caused is, is a step toward your own liberation and freedom and healing. And so this is something we can do as people. This is something we need to do as a country. Do you know that we as a nation have never apologized for slavery? We as a nation have never apologized for genocide. So these are actual processes that some countries as an, as nations have, have led. And I think we need to have in the U S you can do this as an institution. You can actually say, you know what, the, we got this money through a process that was harmful, uh, harmful to communities, or we have marginalized or redlined communities from our funding. We want to acknowledge that, that that is a fact, and we're sorry for it, right? And I don't know about you, but for me, when I've been, when someone has done me wrong, sometimes actually just getting that real authentic apology oh, is more powerful than like the flowers or whatever else they might give me, absolutely. right? Not saying that we don't want reparations, but we also need a true authentic apology. Then the rest of the steps are really about listening, acknowledging the wisdom of others, of the folks who have been excluded and have been exploited by the system with truly accepting and um uh, the the idea that they possess exactly the perspective and wisdom needed to fix it. Relating is step four. That's about sharing our whole selves with others. So this is where we begin to really move into relationship mm-hmm. uh, with folks who are, we're going to do the work with. Uh, representing is about building whole new decision-making tables. If you're really getting into a right relationship, you got to change representation. You can't just set a token place at a colonial table as an afterthought. This is really about building whole new decision-making tables. And then investing and repairing are really about how we use our money. If you are truly sad, if you are truly grieved, if you are truly apologetic and you have listened and you want to be in a right relationship with community, then the where you spend your 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 money um, is going to be a direct uh, reflection of those values. So investing is about putting all of our money where our values are, not just good grant making. But if you are a foundation that, that says you're about criminal justice reform, but you are invested through your endowment in private prisons, then I don't I don't want to hear it like I, I call bullshit. And so it's really about investing all of our money that are, that are in a way that is in alignment with our values. And then repairing is really reparations. It's using money to heal where people are hurting and to stop more hurt from happening. At minimum, we can like stop hurting people. Right. But think about how we could shift money and resources um, to to really center communities of color, because we know that's where the hurt is the worst. So, Edgar, you have me thinking a lot about this idea well, this idea you put forward of money as medicine. And I'll be honest, I struggled with that for a while, right? Like I struggled with this concept because money has been used so abusively, you know, in terms of communities of color. It's, you know, there's all these negative connotations attached to, to money, to wealth accumulation, to capitalism. Can you, how did, how, how did you start reframing that for yourself and get to this conclusion that money can really be used as, as medicine, as healing? You know, it, it came for me during the time I was spending with elders and asking these questions because I had been working in philanthropy and it was feeling icky to me, right? I was like, I'm, I'm a part of the problem. I'm working with this money. And an elder uh, said to me that the medicine that had had chosen me was money, Mm. which I thought was a very bizarre thing to say. I'm like, you know, in our culture, anything can be medicine that we, we say that you don't choose the medicine, it chooses you. 
And it, it's, it's really another way to think about it is like, what is your gift? What is your calling? What is your superpower? And, you know, if you come from the, the, the church, you might remember the scripture that, you know, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, right? And, you know, what, what that gift that you have, that calling is just something that you are, um, it is bestowed upon you. And so to hear the money was the thing for me, I was like, oh, that's weird. And so that sent me on a journey to really unpack that and to, to understand that money itself is not a, a bad thing, right? It's a proxy. It's a symbol. It represents energy. It represents relationships. It represents the sweat we spend on uh, our hustle, right? And money has, has historically been used in a way that is oppressive and terrible and has caused trauma. Um, but it's not actually the money. It's people who have had an unbalanced sense of um, needing to hoard and hoard and hoard and hoard more and more money and have used money to control and to cause harm on communities. And so I kind of flipped that and said, well, if money has been used in a way to harm, can it be used in a way to heal? And um, I think that we can if we use money in a very different way. We have to understand that it's not about the money. And it's like, you know, like going again back to the church, the, the Bible does not say that we misquote the scripture that that money is a root of all evil. And we even preach that in churches and we have people growing up and feeling certain ways about money. So money in itself is not bad. It's the love of money. So when we love money more than people, mm-hmm. we love money more than this planet. That love of, of that thing, that that is the evil, not money itself. So okay, you you are preaching because I'm I'm about to shout sitting here having this interview that that I felt that in my spirit, um, and I hope our audience does too because that was really really profound. Um, we're we're getting to the end of the interview, and um, I do want to get two things in before we have to wrap up. Um, so one, I love to hear, you know, what are the what what is your your calling to philanthropy right now? We're in this moment. What can what can those folks who are in the philanthropic sector uh, take away from this book and begin applying it in the work that they're doing every day? I want to be clear about that. Um, what we're calling on philanthropy to do, um, and then we'll start wrapping our our conversation. Sure. So there's a lot of things that philanthropy can do and that they should be doing that's just best practice philanthropy. And I won't get into all of those like general operating support, blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm -hmm. What I am pushing us to think through is like, what is a radical way that we can actually shift power and build wealth in communities? Um, One example of that is we now have a very uh, rich philanthropic infrastructure that exists that was created by people of color and led by people of color, right? Think about the Groundswell Fund that's supporting women of color, right? Think about uh, Liberated Capital is the fund that I've created. We have many, many of these that exist. What we have is accountability to community. We have an analysis and we know our communities better than any foundation ever will. We have relationship and communities that that run so deep that a foundation will never be able to recreate that. What we don't have is capital. And so what would it look like for a foundation, for foundations to tap into their endowments, begin cutting off pieces of those endowments and investing those in the philanthropic intermediary infrastructure space? And I don't mean that in, in a way because all intermediaries are not created equal. Many perpetuate bad philanthropic practice. I'm talking about these intermediaries that are of community and for community led by people of color, because what happens even when foundations become progressive and woke and they're funding good stuff, um, we know that's going to be temporary. And we have foundations lately who have really upset community, right, because they have, um, you know, um, been there supporting people of color and made all these commitments, but one person can change their mind and move on. And then we're left holding uh, a major gap in supporting our communities. And so we need to think about what can philanthropy do to uh, begin to just take wealth, not good grant. I'm over grant making. I want the capital. I want the wealth. The real money. I want to like redistribute it among these philanthropic intermediaries because when we have that wealth, we're going to do right by our communities and we're going to be there long after you're gone. And so that's kind of a, a radical 
notion that I'm putting out for funders to think through. Um, you know, yeah, do your your grant making with a racial equity lens, but also what can you do to invest in long term POC led philanthropic infrastructure so that we have the power and the money, and we don't have to keep running back to you and playing the playing these games um, because we need to have our own self determination around how we want to fund our communities. So for the people in the back, I want to make sure you heard that it's about the real money that's in the endowment. <laughs> We're not just talking about the grant making dollars, which, you know, is a drop in the bucket. We're talking about the redistribution of the endowment money um, that continues to accumulate over time. And I think that's, I, I love that idea. I think it's bold and it's fresh. And to me, it, it really starts, uh, poking at this larger idea of reparations. What does it mean to redistribute wealth that's been hoarded and accumulated through extractive capitalistic practices like slavery or other things? All right. So I want to do some quick rapid fire questions. So we end all of our calls like this. It's been amazing to hear different people's answers to this. So these are quick rapid fire questions. You know, first thing that comes to mind, first thing that comes to your spirit. So the first one, you ready? Ready. All right. The first one is how do you define freedom? Oh God, that's hard. Um, untethered liberation. Mm-hmm. What inspires you to keep fighting? Black and indigenous women. Mm, Sheila. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sheila. This one is, and who are your personal heroes? My personal heroes are... Um, really everyday people and there, there's no sort of big name people. I've, I've had a chance to meet so many celebrities and, and folks like that. And I love a lot of those folks, but it's really just the everyday folks who are behind the scenes, right? When you think about women of color have been uh, elected recently, it, it's those campaign managers and their strategists behind the scenes. Someone like a Jessica Bird, I just love her. Mm-hmm. Um, these, these smart, smart women who are um, just making it happen every single day and are just holding so much. Those are the folks that really inspire me. Awesome. So thank you so much, Edgar, for joining me. I so appreciate you supporting the podcast as it's getting off the ground. But I want to make sure that we have uh, our guests have a way of staying in touch with you. So do you want to tell us how they can follow the great work you're doing with Decolonizing Wealth, with Liberating Capital, as well as with the Shot Foundation for Public Education? Yeah, the best way is probably to follow my socials at Villanueva Edgar on Twitter and Instagram. You can go to uh, decolonizingwealth.com and sign up for our newsletter. That's kind of where we keep uh, all the updates. So I would love to welcome you to the family. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll definitely make sure we tag you in all of our promo for this episode and folks can find you through us as well. But thank you so much. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And as your friend, I am honored to watch the journey, to watch you go from, you know, talking about this and ideating to seeing this work be birthed in such a time as this. So Edgar, thank you so much. I appreciate you and I love you. I love you too. Thank you for holding down this space. (laughs) All right. So before we close today, I want to take a minute to recap the conversation today with Edgar. As many of you all know, I come from the same field of philanthropy as Edgar, and his book has really been a mic drop in the field. I think, you know, so many of us who have um, toiled in this work, who have been in the position of gatekeeper, um, really have had this, this feeling in the pit of our stomach, right, that Edgar's book in many ways articulated for us. And so a couple of things that I wanted to bring forward from the conversation that my conversation with Edgar really has me contemplating is this idea of culture. And what is at stake in this moment, this moment of COVID-19, this moment of recession, this moment of 
political and cultural unrest in our in our country. And you know, it's really interesting to me that one of the the pain points that native and black communities share with each other is this idea of culture and the erasure of culture. So when we lose an elder, right, that a library has burned. And I think about the impact that COVID-19 and all the things that we're enduring in this moment have had on um, our community. And what we're really losing, what's really at stake is this idea of, of culture, the culture that has sustained us through many eras, through many challenges, uh, through the systemic oppression, and that culture that's been our medicine, that's been our guide, that has brought us back to one another to be able to process, has brought us back to our humanity. And so I think it's really important for us to understand what culture is. It's often this amorphous thing. It's not just food. It's not just gathering. It's not just celebration. It's all those things. It's how we relate to each other. It's how we see each other. It's how we show up for each other. And we need to really understand what is at stake in this moment and be really vigilant. So I'm excited because going forward after we um, move through this series on uh, the future of philanthropy, we're going to talk about the importance of culture. So thank you, Edgar, for starting that conversation with us. The other piece that um, I'm always struck by is really thinking about how do we navigate multiple identities. Edgar being um, Native and talking about his experience in school, being both Native and a fair complexion, and at the same time really identifying with African-American culture. And myself, right, being African-American, but also attending predominantly white schools at one point, um, and how we manage those multiple identities. And, you know, how those identities and claiming those, uh, um, a really important part of our healing to understand that we can be all of those things, that we don't have to choose one thing, that there's not a way to be Black or a, a way to be Native, um, but really a way to be you. And how do we honor the multiple identities and the complexity of those identities as we interact with each other in the world. So the other thing that I think my conversation with Edgar really brings home is that we have to have a real conversation about equity and philanthropy. It is um, really important that we remember that the accumulation of wealth that is then redistributed to communities through philanthropy was actually acquired by exploiting people oftentimes, right? That is the exploitation of people um, that allows us to accumulate capital and then to redistribute that capital through philanthropy that comes with all of the strings attached in many ways, the shackles attached to those resources. And so I think this moment, um, beginning with Edgar's book, really opens up a conversation about what does it really mean to talk about equity and philanthropy? And are we going to really investigate and interrogate the accumulation of wealth in and of itself and the practices of philanthropy? Um, so, you know, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. I am loving the book, Decolonizing Wealth. So I really hope that those of you um, who are interested in learning more will go and get the book um, and really sit with his ideas of the seven steps of healing um, and this idea that money, money can be medicine. And that was a really radical idea for me. I think as someone who's been in the social justice um, work for a long time, the movement for a long time, we're often taught that money and capitalism is the root of all evil. And I really love Edgar's approach to this idea of thinking about love um, and the way in which the love of money is really the root of e all evil. But money itself can be used if it is intended to do so as a way to bring medicine, as a way to heal folks. All right, y'all. So anyway, lots for us to continue discussing. And we're going to continue this series on philanthropy and social justice and the future of philanthropy in our next um, and upcoming episodes. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today for Converge for Change, the Business of Social Justice podcast. And thanks again to Edgar for talking with us. You can follow his amazing work on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Villanueva Edgar, V-I-L-L-A, 
N-U-E-V-A, Edgar, E-D-G-A-R. Also on Instagram at Decolonizing Wealth. And you can also find them at www.decolonizingwealth.com. And again, you can follow the Shot Foundation on Instagram at Shot, S-C-H-O-T-T-F-O-U-N-D, at Shot Found. And on Facebook at Shot Foundation for Public Education. Be sure to follow me on social media at I am Takima and at Converge for Change so you can be the first to know about our next guest in this series on the future of philanthropy.